is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks very much for tuning in. If you were to round up all of your friends and look at them, what would you all have in common? For most Americans, the answer to that question would first be about race. That the majority of the people you have who are friends are mostly the same race as you are. This is especially true for white Americans, but it also seems to hold up almost as much for other groups. So why does this matter? I think it's because in this moment, when so many of us are hearing words like allyship and inclusion in a deep way for the first time, it's important to consider how our own biases in our country's systemic racism have permeated even our most personal relationships. And aside from our families, Where do so many of our first real relationships begin? They begin at school. And it turns out that if you don't make cross-racial friendships when you're young, it's a lot more difficult to do that when you are older. That is where we want to spend the rest of the hour today, investigating the deeper implications of our earliest relationships with someone who knows a lot about this kind of thing. Beverly Daniel Tatum is a psychologist, and she's the author of the national bestsellers, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And Can We Talk About Race? Beverly Daniel Tatum, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you this morning. Yes, I'm glad that you're here. So let's start with uh, your assessment of of what we are confronting in this unprecedented moment in which we find ourselves living and confronting not only a pandemic that has highlighted differences and some inequalities, but then, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, which really – uh, exploded after the, the murder of George Floyd by police officers in, in Minneapolis. Uh, I would love to hear how you're feeling about all of this. Well, it's certainly been quite a remarkable time for all the reasons you just stated. You know, we're in this pandemic. Many of us have been sheltering at home for months. And certainly in the midst of that, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis was something that was so visible to so many people. Maybe at another time when people were busy at work, they might not have seen the video, they might have just heard about it, but so many people at home having access to repeated viewings just really galvanized, I think, a sense of empathy, certainly with Mr. Floyd and certainly for African Americans, a sense of outrage, but for other people as well who could see that he was not deserving in any way of the treatment he was receiving. Mm. And so, um, you know, the evidence there in front of us on a video screen for so many minutes seemed to really light a spark in many communities, even places where there's not a large African American population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's been quite remarkable to see happen. Yeah. So I I wanted to have you on today because I think so many people and white people specifically are doing some deep introspection in this moment around their own privilege. And I wanted to talk with you about how this really starts so early in our lives because of the way that this country has institutionalized racism so deeply. Uh, uh, Talk about the importance of 
how we begin to form relationships as children and how that influences the way we relate to other people as adults. Well, I think uh, we should start with the fact that most of us are living in segregated communities, and that is not by accident, right? We know that one of the patterns of racism, one of the way racism has manifested itself um, over time has been the way our neighborhoods are structured. So it's not, um, it's not a surprise that so many white families are living in largely white communities, mm -hmm. uh, suburban communities that were originally created with a very intentional, uh, sometimes legal clauses in, um, you know, deeds saying, you know, you can't sell this to an African-American. So we, if we go back to the forties and fifties, when a lot of suburban communities were being created, uh, new housing developments, et cetera, they were structured as all white communities. Mm -hmm. That segregation has persisted and we know school segregation has persisted. So kids make friends with kids they have contact with. Proximity for most of us is probably the first factor in determining whether you're going to be friends with someone. Do you ever encounter them? Do you spend time with them? Um, are they nearby? And if they are, you know, if the kid lives next door, you're going to become friends in all likelihood because you're going to be spending time together in the neighborhood. If no one who, um, you know, if everyone looks like you in your neighborhood, that's who your friends are going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are in a neighborhood or in a school where there's a diverse population, then there's the possibility that you may be able to make friends with people who are different from you in some significant way. Yeah. And, and as you pointed out, that ties in to housing. Schools are, uh, are formed in most communities by the communities that surround them. And if those communities are not diverse, it's really hard to make, uh, to make the schools diverse. Uh, uh, talk about how, how, I guess, deeply ingrained this is in the history of inequality and bias in, in, this, in this country. Sure. Well, actually, Detroit plays a very important role in all of it that. Does. Because, yes, so, you know, 1954 was the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which um, the Supreme Court said, you know, separate is not equal. So we must uh, eliminate any sense of legalized segregation in our school system. And then, of course, other legal decisions like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended segregation and public accommodations and other things. But when we talk about the 54 Brown decision, many people think, oh, well, that, you know, that ended school segregation, but not really. What we know is that many districts were very slow to desegregate in the South and in the North, in a place, let's say, like Detroit, where there's a large African-American population in the city, but in the suburbs, largely white populations, or at least that was true in the 70s, the and probably still is true, right? The um, one of the one of the pivotal court cases mm -hmm. involved um, a decision about whether you could bus kids, white kids from the suburbs into the city, or black kids from the city into the suburbs across school district lines, mm -hmm. in order to achieve segregation. In a decision in 1974 was the decision that basically said Detroit was the case. The Milliken case, is, as, as it's known, um, based the, the Supreme Court basically ruled that you cannot 
uh, forced busing across district lines. Right. And if you and if you're not able to do that, and you're got a school district that doesn't have enough white kids or kids of color to really meaningfully desegregate, then that's unfortunate. Yeah. But you can't enforce it. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I also think is is interesting, and this gets to uh, your book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together uh, in the Cafeteria, is even within school districts, the efforts to honor what Brown said we had to do as a society, which was to was to desegregate, uh, often took on really odd and unfair dimensions. So I began my career as a journalist in, in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, which was a city that reached a consent agreement with a federal court over deseg uh, in, the, in the 1970s. And the terms of that consent agreement said that in order to desegregate the schools, what they would do was to close down most of the schools on the black part of town and send the children from those neighborhoods to the white part of town. And what that did was it did, at least numerically, make the schools more integrated. But when you do when you do it that way and when you place the entire burden of desegregation on African-American kids and you send them out of their neighborhoods into other parts of the city where they really don't necessarily feel uh, like they belong, you create this other this other real problem. And I feel like this is one of the things that you're getting at uh, in that book. Talk about the importance of not just numerical segregation, but actual integration and the ways in which uh, the, the power dynamics that govern the way that we desegregated also made it really hard for true integration to take place. Well, sure. One of the things that I think, the first thing I want to say is that when we look at, when we walk into that cafeteria in a racially mixed school and we see... Um, a lot of white kids sitting together and we see the black kids sitting together. No one ever says, why are all the white kids sitting together? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the first thing I want to say. And, and then people will say the black kids are self segregating. Mm -hmm. And, and that actually that term self segregation is a term that I think we really have to take a moment to just say, that's not really what it is. Um, kids may be sitting together because they're having a shared experience. They may be sitting together because the black kids may be sitting together because they don't feel welcome or it's a protective um, uh, strategy in adolescence. And I want to talk about the fact that it usually is observed in adolescence, mm -hmm. not with younger kids. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that is a separation in that way is not the same thing as intentionally segregating keeping people out. So I think when we talk about um, black kids sitting together in the cafeteria as, quote, self-segregation, there's kind of an equating like, oh, you know, they're doing the same thing that was done to them. That's Not right. quite. Yes. Um, it is something different because they are bonding together and often as a way of supporting one another in what can be hostile environments. So having said that, mm -hmm. I think your point about what was going on in Lexington, you know, black kids were being bused into white schools 
Um, my guess is during that time period, there was perhaps a lot of resistance to their sure, presence sure. Um, and qu questions as to whether they felt like they belonged. But even in an environment where schools might say, we want all our kids to feel welcome, one of the things that you find, particularly in middle schools and high schools, is uh, what we call tracking also mm -hmm. known as ability grouping. Oh, yeah. And so if you've got a racially mixed school, it's not so, it's not uncommon to find that the black and brown kids are being concentrated in the lower levels and the white kids are being pushed into the honors and AP track. Mm -hmm. And I so even, so there's a structure around who's sitting together because you're going to sit together with the kids you were in the math class with. If math is the last period before lunch, now you're all going to lunch together. And if you have been separated within the school because of the structure, that's another factor yeah. that feeds into how kids spend time together. And it's important, I think, to note that all of these dynamics, all of these reactions, all of these behaviors are driven at their core by the inequality and the racism that forms the institutions in this country. And so, exactly. you know, when people say, well, why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? It's almost as if it's an attempt to detach that behavior or that dynamic from its roots, which, which yes. are not about black people uh, or, or, or our choices. They are about the things that uh, that were forced upon us. Yes. One of the things that um, is important to say, though, if we think about this relative to friendship and how friendships develop, is that um, it is possible to foster in a racially mixed school. It is possible to create opportunities for kids to connect across racial lines mm -hmm. within the classroom. I find when I'm talking to educators about this, they spend a lot of time talking about who's sitting where in the cafeteria, but not spending much time talking about who's sitting where in the classroom. And the reason I mention that is because when you create opportunities for kids to work together, let's say you've got a racially mixed class and you want kids to work together on a project and you bring the kids together and ask them to work on a shared goal where they are being encouraged to do that by the teacher, the authority figure in the classroom. And they are um, being treated as though they are all equal to one another in this project. Mm -hmm. That kind of opportunity fosters positive cross-group connections. Mm -hmm. And the classrooms where kids have been encouraged to engage with each other, get to know each other really have some commonalities in terms of their interests and what they're working on together, those kids are more likely to spend time together outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, my guest is Beverly Daniel Tatum, a psychologist and author of the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? We're talking about how we make friends in life, how we learn to make friends as children, and how that carries over into adulthood and the likelihood that we have of integrated friends circles if we don't get the opportunity to form those when we are children. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what your friend group looked like in terms of race when you were a kid and tell us what it looks like now. How do you think that has affected your own understanding of race and inequality 
in America. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, uh, I, I want to ask about solutions here, like the future. Um, uh, if if there is someone who is white and grew up in an all-white neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. and doesn't have a diverse friend group, and largely because of that background, what what is it? Something? What are some of the things that that person can do to try to broaden the diversity? Of relationships in their in their life, there is that is a it's a real burden and it is a real barrier. How do you overcome it? Well, you know there are opportunities that most people have in their workplace to get to know folks whose background may be different from theirs racially, ethnically, religiously. The um, because of course, while neighborhoods remain segregated and uh, schools remain segregated. The workplace is increasingly diverse, reflecting the nation's shifting demographics. And so let's imagine someone is working with someone, uh, a white person is working with the African-American in an office setting. Um, Again, if they're working on shared projects, they may get to know each other. Often people have friends at work, but they don't socialize outside of work. Hmm. And so then the question is, is that something you want to do and is that something where you could say I'd like to get to know you better Mm. I want to tell you an example actually of an initiative I live in Atlanta Mm -hmm. and there's something in Atlanta called the Atlanta Friendship Initiative and it was started by a white man an older white man who unfortunately is no longer living but he started it and I will tell you about it um He died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. But when he launched this, he was in his probably 70s, but he was part of a civic organization, the Atlanta Rotary Club. And he heard a talk about an issue in the city involving racism, and he was disturbed by the fact that racism was still a concern. You know, he thought by now we should have moved past it. And so he reached out to a black person, a black man he knew, another business person that, um, He knew as an acquaintance, but didn't know, you know, they'd been in the same meetings together for years, but he didn't really know that person. He invited him for breakfast. They met and he said, you know, I would like to get to know you better. I think that we need to encourage cross-racial friendships and you and I know each other, but we don't really know each other. And would you be willing to spend some time with me so we could get to know each other better? And maybe that could be a model for other people. And his um, black colleague said, yes, I will do that. <laughs> and they became a pair. But then what they did, this is what the Atlanta Friendship Initiative is about. They then made a list of civic leaders, people they knew in the community, um, white leaders and leaders of color, and called them up and asked them if they were willing to be matched up with mm. someone they didn't know right. for the purpose of developing a friendship. Yeah. And... Uh, To date, they've probably got a couple hundred pairs. As I mentioned, the man who founded it, his name was Bill Nordmark. Unfortunately, he passed away. Mm -hmm. His son, who is also a civic leader in the city, has um, joined with his father's black friend, a man named John Grant. And they are continuing to advocate for this 
friendship initiative. Wow. And so um, a number of people have said that they connected with people they knew but had never really spent time with and that now they have very close relationships with that other person. And together they are thinking about how they can make a difference in the city. Yeah. Uh, so I use that as an example to say there was someone who said, you know, I want to get to know you. Is that something that you're open to? Yeah. That's how that conversation started. Yeah, uh, it sounds quite simple. In fact, uh, it's the way you meet just about anyone. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Kianga in Detroit. Kianga, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there? Kianga, are Hello? you there? Yeah, go I'm ahead. Here. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. So my name is Kianga, and um, my situation was I was born in Detroit, and I was raised, um, we moved to California, and I went to private schools most of my life. So most of my friends have always been very diverse, people of color, and also, um, you know, I've connected with white people as well. But when I moved back to Michigan, um, I went to private schools as well there, and I experienced more segregation from my black um, friends at school because of my upbringing and how I present myself. Mm. So um, a lot of times I was ostracized, but then I was accepted by white people too. And that's who I was mostly friends with, but I always had to prove myself as well because I listened to like alternative music and I always had to say, oh yeah, I like the song. <laughs> so it, it's like, it's always been uh, um, me having to prove like who I was in my life um, in my peer circles. Yeah. Um, as an adult now, my friends are still very diverse, you know, I've, and that's like who I connect with a lot of times, people who were always different, people who were always not part of, uh, you know, the main uh, social group. Right. So that's right. my experience. Kianga, I really appreciate the call uh, and your sharing there. Uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum, react to what Kianga's talking about. Well, I know exactly what Kianga is talking about, and I have known. Um, so I myself grew up in a predominantly white community in Massachusetts. And so I've had, and this is often the case, if you are a person of color in an environment that's largely white, you will have friends different from you, mm -hmm. right? You will mm -hmm. have white friends and you'll have friends of color too. Um, if you are in, if you have the opportunity later in your life to interact with black friends who have had a different kind of experience growing up, let's say, in a majority black community, they often don't quite get where you're coming from because they haven't had that experience. Mm. Um, and so it, uh, what I think is important to acknowledge here is that there are m many versions of the African-American experience it's not just one, right? It's not just um, urban environments. It's not just rural Southern environments. There are lots of different ways that um, we experience being African-American in the context of the United States. Yes. And adolescents are notoriously self-centered. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, um, what I mean by that is, is that when we're dealing with adolescents, typically whatever their experience is, they're likely to think that has been yours as well, yeah, right? Yeah. There's a kind of egocentrism. So, and uh, the good news is, you know, they grow out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but certainly the story that Kianga has shared is one that's not uncommon for someone who's had her experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the thing, though, that I think that's really important to point out is that while it is the case that if you are a person of color who's lived in a diverse environment, a largely white environment, you're going to have a diverse group of friends. 
But it is still the case that 90% of white children have only white friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. And that's, that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the big issues here uh, that, that we're talking about. Um, okay, so Beverly, Daniel Tatum, it was really great to have you here with us for Detroit Today. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow and hope you will too. We're going to be joined by The Atlantic's Adam Serwer, who is going to talk about his piece, The New Reconstruction, which argues that the U.S. has its best opportunity in 150 years to fulfill its promise as a multiracial democracy. We'll also hear from DIA director Salvador Salar Pons about the museum's new diversity and inclusion program and the questions about the museum's leadership. This is all coming up tomorrow on Detroit Today.